0: we continue our sermon series that we've been in, which is called We Believe. It's a series that is unpacking our statement of faith as a church and as our sovereign grace denomination. And A statement of faith, when it's done right and and is biblical, is simply a summary to remind us of the most important, most vital beliefs that we hold to. We know that the Bible is our authority. There is no replacing or substituting the Bible, no competition for the Bible. But a statement of faith can be helpful in summarizing some of the teachings of the Bible. This morning we're going to be dealing with the person of Christ, if you're following along in the statement of faith, but we're going to turn in our Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to anchor our hearts in Holy Scripture today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Chapter One. In a small church in a small town in Spain, there hangs a famous painting of Christ. Now it's not famous for maybe reasons we might think. Originally, it was a masterpiece called "Eche Omo," or "Behold the Man." painted in the 1930s by Elias Garcia Martinez. Now, it was considered a masterpiece, but it is no longer because over the years, the painting began to chip and flake and was damaged by moisture. And so, a few years ago, one of the members of the church, an eager member of the church, with perhaps an overinflated understanding of her artistic Abilities and without getting permission from anyone, decided to restore the painting. And what resulted, you could imagine, is a far cry from what it was originally (laughs) in the beginning. In the South, for this lady, we would say, bless her heart. Now here's what's surprising about, not just that someone would say, "You know what? I can improve on that," with no artistic ability to do so. But what, what's even more surprising is this painting gained more popularity after it was ruined. Because tourists started taking pictures of it, posting it on the internet, it started it created all kinds of memes, and, and what was once known as "Eche Homo, behold the man," became "Eche Mono, behold the monkey." <laughs> now you you kind of laugh and you kind of catch yourself because it almost feels blasphemous, right? Just let me let you off the hook. It's a painting. That's not Jesus. It's a painting. It's okay. Wherever you land on should you laugh, should you cry, whatever, let's just all admit, that's messed up. <laughs> like, literally, that is just messed up. But I think it's a helpful reminder of the exact kind of approach we, as a culture, and sometimes we, as God's church, can approach Christ. In that we think somehow we can improve upon the perfect Savior. That that somehow the Jesus in the Bible is a little too exclusive. We've heard already this morning and we sung it together when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is not the popular Jesus with the culture. That is the offensive Jesus. What's popular with the culture, and I think if we search our hearts, some, sometimes the, the Christ we're more comfortable with is the one who is the good teacher, the one who is kind, the one who is a good example. Of course, Jesus is all those things, but he's not only those things. Jesus is God, Jesus is judge and king. And Jesus is the only way. Those things are offensive. And so our hearts can be often tempted to pick and choose the teachings of Christ we agree with and then just kind of quietly push aside the teachings we disagree with. Take what is convenient and apply it and say we're Christian. At the same time, reject the very things that Jesus said he is. And what we'll wind up with if we're not careful what we'll wind up with is a marred mockery of the real thing, a twisted, tragically comical view of our own imagination. Well, thankfully, Jesus wants to protect his church against that. That thing we would create is not Jesus, The only place we can go and know Jesus for sure, as he is, is the Bible. To know Jesus as he himself has revealed to us. And so when we go to the pages of Scripture, we see his complexity, his beauty, his power, all on full display. And we get to bow and worship. And so this morning, I want to encourage you with this simple Statement: To truly know who Jesus is is to truly know he is all you need. To truly know Jesus as he is is to truly know you have in him all you need. Let's read John chapter 1 starting with verse 1 through verse 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. For that promise, that guarantee, that the light you are, the light you have brought into the world, and the light you have placed in us, will not, cannot be overcome by the world. So this morning, Lord, our prayer is that we would see you more clearly. That whatever false assumptions we have made about you, or our imagination that we've created and called it you, that Lord, you would remove you would destroy and that you would reveal yourself to us afresh to see you, to give you glory and to worship you. Help us be with us now in Jesus name. Amen. Now, when we're tackling a topic like the person of Christ, uh, there's no way we could put everything that needs to be said inside a sermon. And so I won't try to do that today. But we're going to lean heavily on John 1, and we're going to look at some other scriptures as well, to see a fuller picture, a more clear picture of Jesus as he is revealed in scripture. And there are three aspects of the person of Jesus that I want to focus on today. One, Jesus is God eternal. Two, Jesus is the Word incarnate. And three, Jesus is the Savior King. So first, Jesus is God eternal. To truly know someone, it's helpful to know where they came from. It's gotten to where it's almost sport with me when I, when I meet someone who is local for the first time. I, I've, we've lived in Minnesota for 18 years, and, but, but it always happens usually uh, when I'm talking to somebody from Minnesota and they're like, hey, where are you from? Like, winking, like, we know, redneck, you're not from here. And so I don't think I've got a southern accent, but apparently enough of one that people pick up on. And, and, but it's a fun conversation because it's a, it's a fun open door for the gospel. Because they're like, where are you from? And, oh, I'm originally from Georgia. What brought you up here? And I just kind of smile and I say, well, the short answer is God did. And they're like, huh? And I was like, let me tell you. And so we're off to the races. Now, as, as we're wanting to get to know Christ, the simple beauty of Christ as he has revealed himself it's important to ask the question, okay, well, where did he come from? What are the beginnings? And, and what we can typically think of is, if we want to go back, we can start thinking of, okay, a bearded, sandal-wearing Messiah who is traveling with his disciples and teaching and doing miracles. And yes, Jesus is that, but that's not the beginning. Not, not even the baby in a manger is the beginning because Jesus has no beginning. I've talked to people before who struggle with the Bible, struggle with Christianity and say, well, who made God? And the question itself is faulty because no one made God. God has always been. Well, I can't figure that out. Exactly, because he's God. Some things are mysterious that are beyond our comprehension. Jesus has no beginning. Father, Son, Holy Spirit have always been one God, three persons. We've unpack that already on a different Sunday. Jesus is not created. Jesus has always been because Jesus is God. And therefore he is eternal. Always has been, always will be. And this passage in John 1, as John, inspired by the Spirit, is writing this, this is one of the first places that John wants to anchor in in the eternality of Jesus. Look again at verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, already a hint to the Trinity. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in seeing the quote "beginnings," we're already seeing creation linked to that, and Jesus' activity in connection with creation. We know God the Father spoke things into existence. And so there is almost a play on words here that God's word is not simply what He has spoken. God's word is an identity, and it is Jesus. God's word is power. God's word is power to create as creation gives us the example. And God's word is power to transform, as we see in our own lives. And so God's word is who he is, reflecting his character and nature. God's word exposes his will. God's word is all-encompassing. And so, as Jesus is called the word, this reminds us Jesus is the fullest expression of the person of God in human form. But let's not jump to the human form too quickly, but let's remember Jesus is power. He told his disciples, "All power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me," Matthew 28. Jesus is the power to transform lives. He is the perfect revelation of who God is, of his character and nature. Remember when we walked through the book of Exodus years ago, and God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush as the great I am. That was meant to convey very clearly that God was not just the one who was or the one who will be, but I am eternally present, eternally God. Now fast forward to the New Testament, when the Pharisees were challenging Jesus on his identity and his authority, and they were holding up their status as sons of Abraham, as something superior that Jesus could not attain. And Jesus answered them saying, Before Abraham was, I am am. That is grammatically not pleasing to our ears. Before Abraham was, I am, but it is a perfect capturing of the divinity of Jesus in his own words. He has no beginning. He has no end because he is God. And when he said, I am, To these religious leaders, they knew full well what he was meaning. That's why they got so angry. He's saying, I was, I am right now, and I always will be. And no one but God can make that claim. Now, Under the law of Moses, that's blasphemy, and the man deserves to be stoned, whoever would say that. But if Jesus is God, and he is, well, then he deserves to be worshiped. When Jesus was then brought before the high priest just before he was crucified, the high priest wanted to hear Jesus answer his accusers. Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest asked a specific question Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Jesus will always be God. And we are thankful for that. Now, when God decided to create man, we know he made man in his image to resemble and reflect God's nature, to know him personally. But we also know in the garden, man chose sin over God. Man chose to try to be his own little God. And so God enacted his rescue plan. Picture it, Jesus, all things created through him, Jesus creating man in his image and likeness. When the rescue plan was enacted, Jesus took the same image that he created man to be and reflect, which was the image of God. Jesus became that. Jesus took on the very image that he already was. That's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? And so we now look to that second aspect of his person this morning. Jesus is the word incarnate. Now, we don't usually use that word incarnate In everyday language, it just simply means something that is spiritual is made physical. What we could not see becomes something we can see. And in this case, invisible God becomes visible. Divinity puts on humanity. Jesus comes from heaven and becomes a baby in a manger. Dropping down in John 1, down to verse 14, the Bible says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When God decided to save mankind, he didn't just send another teacher. He didn't just send another prophet. He came himself. How amazing is that? Jesus came from heaven, humbled himself, became a man, the word made flesh, the perfect embodiment of who God is. Colossians 1.15 says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And as the word, Jesus is also the perfect reflection of all that God has spoken Hebrews 1 reminds us of this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We could praise God all day on that verse. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is the entire Bible in the form of a man who walked the earth. Take, for example, the Ten Commandments. Given to us, given to men... To show us both God's perfection and to remind us of our sinfulness. But not to stay in that sinfulness, but to remind us of our need for a Savior. And so, as the embodied Word of God, Jesus is not only the perfect example of obedience, he is that, but he is also the Word fulfilled the perfect and complete manifestation of Scripture. And in human form, the perfect and complete intended outcome of the Word of God in effect in men and women. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment picture of that. And that's helpful in so many ways. But just take the aspect the mind-blowing mystery that, again, we cannot figure out of Jesus being, at the same time, fully man and fully God. If we have an image of Jesus, like pizza slices, he's half man, half God. We need to get that picture out of our minds. He's not 50-50. He's not divided. He's not conflicted. Fully man and, at the same time, fully God. It was necessary for him to be that. Why? Because as fully man, Jesus was able to address the sin that came through man. But not just as one like Adam. The second Adam is sinless. If he had sinned, he would have to pay for his own sin. But since he was sinless, he was able to pay for our sin. So therefore, he was fully man. And yet it was also necessary for him to be fully God at the same time because among other reasons, the penalty for sin was the full, just wrath of a holy God. And there is no human, mere human, that could withstand the full measure of God's wrath. And so fully man, fully God, here we have this mystery of Jesus that we begin to have our amazement renewed. We begin to have our awe renewed. That was one of my prayers for this morning, that, that our awe and amazement of who Jesus is would be afresh and renewed. One of my kids asked me, "What, Dad, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I smiled and I said, Jesus. <laughs> and they said, well, you always do that. And I'm like, Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Let that always be the case. But even though we preach on Jesus all the time, may our affection be renewed. May our understanding, that needle, be moved a little more in the fullness direction to know him and love him and that our affection would grow for him and our adoration and worship would increase because he's worthy. Our worship is often hindered not not simply by what we feel, Because we all know we can feel one way and Jesus deserves something else. But sometimes our worship is hindered because of our lack of understanding. We sometimes don't understand how amazing Jesus is. We're not pretending for complete understanding, but to grow in that, pursue that. He wants us to know him. That's why he reveals himself in his word. And so he has revealed himself as fully man, fully God who fully saves and fully loves his people. Let that affect us. The statement of faith words it this way. Jesus entered into full human existence, enduring the common infirmities, temptations, and sufferings of mankind. He perfectly revealed the character of God, taught with divine authority and utter truthfulness, extended God's love and compassion, And demonstrated his lordship, yet both his human and divine natures are united and find expression in the one person of the eternal son. Thus, our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, is fully God and fully man, able to be our all-sufficient savior and the only mediator between God and man. Hallelujah. Jesus as a man living in a fallen world we are told he experienced every temptation you and I will face yet without sin therefore he can relate to our struggles you've heard it this morning already Hebrews 4:15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but what kind of priest do we have One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Picture it, church. Even though Jesus never sinned, he experienced firsthand the effects of sin all around him in the broken world. And and I would venture to say he experienced it more than we do because as holy God the brokenness, the sin around him would be infinitely more offensive to him than it would be to us. Jesus stood outside the grave of his friend and wept. He was not detached. Jesus got tired. Jesus got hungry. Jesus was often wearied. There were times Jesus was sad or he was troubled. He experienced the fullness of humanity in part so that we would have that advocate, that he knows firsthand what you and I go through. I think it's wonderful when we pray that we go into detail, that we define for the Lord how we're feeling and what we've been through. He wants to hear those things. But thankfully, none of our prayers are informing God of something he didn't previously know. God already knows our needs. Jesus knows specifically what those needs feel like apart from the sinful aspect. He knows the brokenness and has felt it. And therefore, compassion from God belongs to you. You receive grace in your time of need. Christian, you do not receive condemnation ever. The only condemnation you and I struggle with is self-imposed. It's the marred portrait we try to improve and say, well, I've got to really heap on guilt if I'm really going to feel bad. No, 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 no. Jesus took that guilt. He took that shame. He took that sorrow for you. Don't try to improve upon the perfect Savior. There is no improvement. He's perfect just as he is. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon says this, Jesus Christ called himself the son of man to express his oneness and sympathy with his people. He thus reminds us that he is the one whom we may approach without fear. As a man, we may take to him all our griefs and troubles, for he knows them by experience in that he himself hath suffered as the son of man. He is able to comfort us. All hail thou blessed Jesus. That's who you and I serve. That's who he who loves us this morning. And that's who in our most difficult circumstances, and they're probably very fresh in our minds right now of what we've walked through and what we're still walking through. In the midst of the most devastating trials, what a gift, what a joy to remember that Jesus, the word incarnate, The Son of Man intimately knows our struggles. And so his grace is abundant for you. His strength is limitless for you. And his love is enough for you. So, we've seen Jesus as God eternal. He is the Word incarnate. And third, finally, Jesus is the Savior King. A few verses later on in the first chapter of John we see Jesus coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. Verse 29 it says, the next day he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, this is before Jesus ever preached a sermon, before Jesus did a miracle. John the Baptist prophetically knew Jesus' purpose, the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice for sin, the one who would not only pay for the sins of his people, for all who would trust in him, but that Jesus would also take away their sin. Let's not forget that. He not only pays for it, and then we just have to kind of go on probation through life. No, he takes away the power of, of sin from his people once and for all. That's that's a huge piece that Jesus is not only our sacrifice, he is our savior. Here's a practical application of that. A teenager came to me recently and they said, I'm trying to share the gospel with a friend who tells me they're bisexual. and I'm having a hard time sharing the gospel. I'm having a hard time with them receiving it. Because what they tell me is, I can't help the way I am, I'm trapped, I'm stuck, and so I'm going to hell. Almost as if the gospel doesn't apply to that person. Now, on our own, in our own strength, that is absolutely right. We are powerless to be freed from whatever sins ensnare us. We are powerless to change, to transform our own hearts. And it is appalling when we equate the gospel with self-help. It's appalling when we set up 10 ways to change and we're not even talking about Jesus as the one who does the transformation. And so this is real. This is practical to see Jesus as Savior, as the one who not only forgives, not only pays for the sin, but removes the power of sin from his people, that we are no longer forced to sin. We are no longer robots and slaves to the enemy. We have had our chains removed. We have had the prison bars flung open, and we are free. And the Bible says the one whom the Son has set free is free indeed. That's who you are. You are free indeed because of the Son, because of His power, because He's the Savior. And so, as we are free indeed, we can reflect on Christ as the one who freed us and give Him glory. Now, there's a separate section in our statement of faith dealing with the work of Jesus, and we're gonna get to that, Lord willing, next Sunday. But I just can't separate who Jesus is from what He's done. We can't do that. We know that because he is the Savior, Jesus saves. Because he lives, he gives life. And because he is king, he reigns and rules. And it's this aspect of king, as we begin to understand who Jesus is, that we cannot leave off not just who he was in eternity past, not just who he he is, but now who he is forever as he is right now, not just in the incarnation as we would celebrate at Christmas or as we would read of the narratives in scripture, but as we see the end of the story and who Jesus is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father, sitting in power, our King who rules and reigns in heaven And who is soon returning to rule and reign on the earth. Jesus tells us how it ends in Revelation 21. Then I saw, this is the same John seeing these things. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. For the former things have passed away. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He rules and reigns in heaven. And the same way he ascended to heaven after his resurrection, the angel said he will return in like manner. Jesus will return as soon coming ruling king to rule forever. We can't forget that. We can't minimize that as we want to see more fully who Jesus is. He's not hanging on the cross anymore. Sometimes it's as simple as how we look at jewelry. Catholics wear crucifixes with Jesus still hanging on it, and Protestants wear the empty cross. Wherever you place importance on that, that's that's on you. But I think it's really important for us to remember the cross as empty. He's not there anymore. He's ruling and reigning, for he has risen. Our statement of faith says it this way. Having fully obeyed his Father in life, our Savior was also obedient unto death. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, dying a substitutionary death for the sins of his people. He was buried and rose, arose bodily from the dead on the third day. He is now enthroned at the right hand of God, reigning over all things and interceding for his people as their great high priest, One day he will return to judge all people and angels, putting all his enemies under his feet and dwelling with his people forever. To know Jesus as king, we cannot gaze upon that and remain unchanged. That affects who we are because seeing Jesus as king reminds us we are his people, we are his redeemed, we are his bride. To trust in Christ is to have the promise that you will be with Christ forever in his kingdom and under his perfect care. Because he took our sorrows in Jesus, we have everlasting joy. Because he Defeated death, you and I are promised eternal life. Because he defeated sin, we are freed from its power as well. Because he defeated the devil, you and I have power over the devil in Jesus' name. And because he's coming again, we will see him one day face to face. Nothing will stop it. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. We will see him. One day, we will see him as he is. And every hope and every joy and every longing in an instant will be fulfilled. Jesus told John in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Because he is eternal God, there is nothing he cannot do. There is no problem you will face that he cannot fix. There is no struggle you will go through that will take him by surprise. As eternal God, he can meet you. There is nothing so bad that he can't turn it into something good because he's God. As the word incarnate He has all the wisdom and knowledge you need because he is wisdom and knowledge. To know Jesus is to know God. And because he is sovereign and returning king and savior, you can rest assured who wins in the end. I know right now it looks like the enemy is gaining a foothold. It certainly appears like the world is falling apart. But don't allow what you can see to challenge your faith. Don't fear those who are against you, but take courage and have faith because of the one who is for you, the one who is with you, the spirit who lives in you, and Jesus who is soon returning for his church. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we know your word can do more than anything we could say. So I pray now that the effect of your word will not only rest upon us, will not only find a a niche in our brain to be filed, but that, Lord, our hearts would swell with joy and with worship, seeing who you are. And wherever we struggle... Wherever our temptations are to reimagine you, Lord, remove those twisted imaginations and anchor us again in the beautiful purity of who you are in your word, that your people would worship you in spirit and in truth and long for your return. It's in your name we pray. Amen.